Well, even though we are not all able to gather here together today, it's still a privilege and joy to be preaching God's Word to you. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the book of John, chapter 19. John, chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 16. I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter. Wherever you are, I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word from John, chapter 19. Beginning in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we confess that we have so many anxieties, so many cares, so many worries, so many thoughts that are buzzing through our minds each day. And as we come to this time, Lord, we want to hear your word. We want to hear you speak to us. Help us, God. It can be so hard being in this almost empty warehouse, being at home watching on a screen, Lord. Please focus our hearts and minds on Jesus to hear your word this morning. God, we want to see Jesus. We want to be transformed and changed. Help us in this time ahead. Bless us for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I can't believe it. How could this have happened? That was all I could think about in the car ride home on what felt like one of the worst days of my life. I was completely shocked and absolutely devastated. Honestly, I just wanted to crawl up in a little ball and cry. Now, I didn't, but I wanted to. All because on that day, I had failed my driver's test. Now, let me clarify something real quick. I passed my first driver's test at 16 with flying colors. I'm a good driver. I know everybody says that. Even Pastor Jeremy says that. But he told us about all the dented bumpers and speeding tickets that he's had. And let the record show, I don't have any dented bumpers or speeding tickets because I'm a good driver. But apparently, my 13 years of driving experience just wasn't enough to cut it for my first driving exam in Spain. And on that day, after I failed that test, I was seriously distraught. You can ask Samantha, that was a really bad day for me. And doesn't it sort of feel like we've just had a month of really bad days all in a row? If you're anything like me, it feels like you just keep saying to yourself over and over, I can't believe this is really happening. Now, as far as I know, I'm not sick with the coronavirus, but I am sick of the coronavirus. You know what I mean? I'm sick of all these quarantines and not being able to gather together with you all for worship on Sunday morning. I'm sick of all these people getting sick and dying. I'm sick of all these businesses closing and people losing their jobs. I'm sick of all these bad days and all this bad news, and I'm sure you are too. But this morning, I've got more bad news for you. Our text tells us about another bad day. John 19 records in vivid detail the day on which the Savior of the world, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was crucified. As a matter of fact, that wasn't just a really bad day. That was the worst day of Jesus' life and the worst day of human history. On that day, his disciples, his mother Mary, the women who had followed him, they were absolutely devastated. As they watched Jesus being crucified, they had to be thinking to themselves, I can't believe this is really happening. And yet, that bad day, the worst day in human history, we call it good. Good Friday. How can that be? 
How can such a bad day be a good day? What turns a bad day into a good day? What turns bad news into good news? We really need to know the answer to those questions because right now we're having a lot of bad days full of a lot of bad news. The answer to all those questions is right here in John 19. We're jumping into the story, into the worst day of Jesus' life, into the story of his crucifixion right here in verse 16. Up until this point, Pontius Pilate had unsuccessfully tried to release Jesus or at least let him off with a lighter punishment. But now... He gives in to the demand of the Jews. Look with me beginning at verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. Now today when we hear that word, it doesn't disturb us in the same way that it would have a first century Jew or Gentile living in the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of punishment that the Romans could come up with. It was reserved for only the worst of criminals. The pain was so intense that we came up with a word to describe it. Excruciating, which comes from the Latin words for out of the cross. Excruciating pain is pain so bad that it feels like you're being crucified on a cross. So for the first readers of the book of John, who were still living under Roman rule at that time, they would have heard this word crucifixion, and some of them would have literally shuddered at the thought. Children would have had nightmares about crucifixion. And that's what happened to Jesus on the worst day of his life. He was crucified. The text says in verse 18, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. An inscription or sign was sometimes placed on the crosses of crucified criminals to give the reason for execution. It served as a warning to others to not commit the same crime or they could expect the same fate. The irony is that Jesus, who was perfectly sinless, who never disobeyed God's law, is actually guilty as charged, according to Pilate's sign. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And not only the king of the Jews, Jesus is the king of all nations. Verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. The sign was written in the three most common languages of the day. Don't miss the irony here either. Jesus is the king of all peoples, tribes, and languages. On that bad day, the declaration, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, was written in three languages. And today, according to Wycliffe Bible translators, this declaration has been written in New Testaments in over 1,500 languages worldwide. Jesus Christ is truly the king of all those who speak Aramaic, Latin, Greek, Quechua, Berber, English, Spanish, Chinese, all languages that have ever been spoken and ever will be spoken. Verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written 
I have written. This is the only occurrence in the entire book of John of that phrase, the chief priests of the Jews. John, again, uses subtle irony to point out that it is the chief priests of the Jews who have crucified the king of the Jews. The chief priests have usurped their authority, their rank, and just like they coerced Pilate into crucifying Jesus, now they're trying to pressure him into changing the sign. But this time, Pilate won't budge. This time, he asserts his authority, and he lets them know who's really in charge. But Pilate's not in charge, and neither are the chief priests. You see, it'd be really easy to read the story and assume that they're the ones in charge. But John shows us over and over again who's really in charge, and that is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. John shows us that this bad day is all unfolding according to God's plan. From the crucifixion itself down to the smallest details like what happens with Jesus' clothes. Look with me beginning in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments. The Roman soldiers took Jesus and now they take his clothes. You see, crucifixion was not only extremely painful, it was also extremely shameful. In an honor and shame culture like this, dying naked publicly on the cross was the most humiliating way to die. The shame of the cross was just as bad as the pain of the cross. Verse 23, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it, whose it shall be. Look at this. These pagan Roman soldiers who just barbarically crucified Jesus are now rationally reasoning with one another, coming to a group consensus as casually as if they were deciding on where to go to lunch. That's because for them, this was just an ordinary Friday. They didn't think anything special was going on. Little did they know that what they were doing was fulfilling a word spoken by God in Psalm 22, 18, which was written a thousand years beforehand. Verse 24 says, This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What these soldiers did by gambling for Jesus' last earthly possessions was all a part of a plan that God had designed from eternity past. John is the only gospel author out of the four who repeatedly points out how the crucifixion fulfilled scripture. He does it here with the details about the soldiers taking Jesus' clothes. He does it again in verse 28 with Jesus being thirsty. And again in verse 36 when the soldiers did not break Jesus' bones. And yet again in verse 37 when the soldiers pierced Jesus' side. John says, this happened to fulfill scripture. And this happened to fulfill scripture. And this happened to fulfill scripture. And oh yeah, this too happened to fulfill scripture. All right, John, enough already. We get it. What's your point? His point is this, even though it may have seemed like this was just a bad day that was spinning out of control, that this was just an unforeseen, unfortunate, tragic end to the life of Jesus, it wasn't. On this bad day, on the worst day of human history, God was never thinking to himself, I can't believe it! How can this be happening? 
By highlighting all the ways that the crucifixion fulfilled scripture, John is pointing out that everything on that bad day, even down to the most seemingly insignificant minor details, was planned ahead of time by God. Acts 2, 23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. John shows us that everything was going according to God's plan and that King Jesus was still in complete control. That was true of that Friday afternoon on that hill far away, and that's true of your Friday afternoon here not so far away. It's really easy to lose sight of this on bad days, isn't it? During this pandemic, sometimes it feels like we've lost all control over our lives. Sometimes it feels like the coronavirus is in control or the governor is in control. Sometimes on really bad days, it feels like nobody is in control. But this whole experience has been a good reminder for us that we were never in control to begin with. We're not in charge, but neither is the coronavirus. And neither is the governor. King Jesus is in charge. He's the one in control. So when you can't even control whether there's extra toilet paper in the bathroom, it's a good time to remember that King Jesus is in control. When you can't control whether the stock market goes up or down, it's a good reminder to trust that King Jesus is in control. When you can't even control whether or not you have a job next week, it's a good reminder to trust that King Jesus is in control. On good days and on bad days, when there's pandemics and when there aren't pandemics, King Jesus is still in control and he has a good purpose and a good plan for your life that he's working out for his glory and your ultimate good. During this time, we need to remember that God takes even bad things and folds them into his good plan and his good purposes. Even bad things like what these soldiers did when they crucified Jesus and took his clothes. Verse 24. So the soldiers did these things. The soldiers did these things, but Jesus willingly gave up his clothes to them in order to fulfill the scripture. Jesus gave the tunic off his back so that by faith in him, we can be clothed with his perfect righteousness. As king, he decided what would happen with his inheritance in the next few verses, we see that as king, he decides who's part of his royal family. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four soldiers crucified Jesus, and standing by his side were these four women and one of his disciples. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's a reference to the apostle John, the author of this book, the text continues, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Even on the worst day of his life, even as he's being crucified, Jesus is not focused on himself. He's focused on others. All the way up through the final moments of his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. Here we see him obeying the fourth commandment to honor father and mother. By this point, Joseph was probably already dead, and so Mary was a widow, which meant that Jesus, as her eldest son, was responsible to care for her. But now that he's dying, he knows that someone must take his place. So what does he do? Jesus gives Mary another son to look after her in his place. He takes two people who were not blood relatives, and on the cross, 
unites them together as family. And he's still doing that to this day. Jesus has taken us, people who are not blood relatives, and through the cross, by faith in him, has united us together as the church. And as Jesus pointed out in places like Matthew 12, 49, the physical bond that we have with our blood relatives is surpassed by the spiritual bond that we have through the blood of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken by his heavenly father, and he gave away his earthly mother to his disciple John. On the cross, Jesus gave up his family so that by faith in him, we could be part of the family of God. Mary was having a bad day, to say the least. Watching her beloved son be crucified was like having a sword pierced through her own soul. She was having a bad day, and John was having a bad day. Jesus knew that they needed one another to get through this bad day and all the days that were ahead for them. And Jesus knows that we need one another to get through these bad days and through all the bad days and good days that we'll have for the rest of our lives. It wasn't good for man to be alone in the garden or at the crucifixion. And it's certainly not good for man to be alone during this pandemic. We need one another. And we're feeling that right now, aren't we? That's why we miss gathering together for worship on Sundays so much. That's why these corporate times of prayer that we've had, these 48 hours of prayer, have been so sweet and encouraging. We need to be praying with and for one another right now. We need to gather for corporate worship as soon as we can. We need to be serving one another right now. We need to show hospitality to one another. We need to bear one another's burdens right now. On the bad days, especially. During this pandemic, we are learning the lesson that we were not made to be alone. We need one another now more than ever. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, This bad day is quickly getting worse. Jesus has given up all his earthly possessions. He's given up his family. And now he's about to give up his life and die. Jesus knows the plan. He knows what's going on. As king, he is in complete control. And he knows that the end has come. Verse 28. Jesus said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. There John goes again, pointing out how another seemingly minor detail was all part of the plan. Jesus the source of living water, becomes thirsty for our sake so that we may never thirst again. Verse 29. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. King Jesus has a servant serve him wine in order to fulfill the scripture. Verse 30. This is it. This is the climactic moment of the crucifixion when we find out if God will save the king. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Up until this moment, with every fiber of their being, Mary and John and these women are still clinging to the hope That surely somebody is going to do something and not just let this innocent man die. Surely Elijah or one of these prophets is going to come back and save him. Surely 
Jesus, who performed all these miracles during his life, can still save himself? Surely God is not just going to let his only son die at the hands of these miserable wretches. Surely evil is not going to win. Surely injustice is not going to prevail. This can't be happening. How can this be happening? He was supposed to be the one. He was supposed to be the one to redeem us. We had hoped that he would be the one to save us. Now we know how the story ends. But at this moment in the story, there is no hope. And we need to feel the weight of that if the rest of this story is going to make any sense at all. These women who had followed Jesus, his mom, Mary, John, the beloved disciple, at this moment, they feel about as dead inside as Jesus really was dead outside on that cross. This is the bad news that we don't like to think about. This is the bad news that the wages of sin is death. This is the bad news that it was our fault that this innocent man was humiliated and tortured to death. And not just any man, but the God-man, the Son of God, the sinless Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. This is the bad news that it was my sin and your sin and our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Until it was finished. What is it? When Jesus said, it is finished, what exactly is it that has been finished? It is not merely the crucifixion. It is not simply his life. It is not only the pain. It is the divine plan of God to pay the penalty for all of our sins. It is the wrath of God for our sins. It is the just punishment that we deserve for our sins. Jesus finished it so that by faith in him, you don't have to. And that's really good news. Because unbelievers in hell will always be suffering the punishment for their sins, but never be able to finish it. Revelation 14.11 says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night jesus is the only one who bore the full wrath of god for our sins and finished it even the penalty for those sins that you've committed that you think are unforgivable if you will forsake your sin and trust in jesus christ no punishment no penalty no wrath remains Jesus completely finished it for you. He didn't nearly finish it so that you could finish the rest by your good works. He didn't almost finish it so that by reading your Bible or by tithing or by being a really good person, you could finish the rest. If that were the case, you would get the glory. But Jesus gets all the glory because he did all the work. He completely finished it for you. That's why salvation is by grace alone. He did it for us even though we didn't deserve it. He completely finished it. That's what he said right before he died. And even in these final moments of his life, King Jesus was in complete control. Notice that verse 30 doesn't say, he said, it is finished, and then he died. What's it say? It says, 
he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. King Jesus bows his head in willing submission to God's plan and gives up his life. On the cross, Jesus gave up his life so that by faith in him, we may have eternal life. He truly gave up his life. He truly died. And just to make it crystal clear, in the next few verses, John tells us a part of the story that no one else does. Look with me beginning in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, or the Friday for the Jews, that was the day when they got everything prepared and all their work done so they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, the normal Roman practice was to leave the bodies to rot on the crosses as a warning sign to others. But the Jews asked Pilate to make an exception. For one reason, because Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, forbids bodies hung on a tree to remain overnight. The Jewish leaders were so careful about obeying the law, and yet they had unjustly put to death the only one who had ever perfectly obeyed the law. That's how legalism always works. You focus so hard on trying to earn God's favor by keeping his law, and you completely miss Jesus. The other reason they asked to take the bodies down is because beginning at sundown, the Sabbath began. And not just any Sabbath, but the Passover Sabbath. It was by no accident that the Lamb of God was slain at the same time when the Jews were celebrating God's deliverance of his people by sacrificing lambs. The Jewish leaders don't want bloody, crucified Jewish bodies hanging on Roman crosses just outside of Jerusalem on one of the biggest holidays of the year. Just like in days past, we wouldn't have wanted to see bodies still swinging from the gallows in Washington, D.C. on Easter Sunday. So, the text says in verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. Breaking their legs would have sped up the death process because in order to breathe, they would have had to pull up with their nailed hands and push up with their nailed feet, which would have caused excruciating pain, but would have at least allowed their lungs to inflate. Once their legs were broken, they would slowly suffocate and die. Are you beginning to see why people would have had nightmares about crucifixion? Crucifixion was so terrible that breaking their legs was actually an act of mercy because it put them out of their misery. The criminals on either side of Jesus were still alive, so the soldiers broke their legs. But, verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. They didn't break his legs because Jesus already appeared to be dead. These were trained Roman soldiers, professional crucifiers. They would not have disobeyed an order from their commanding officer unless they were absolutely sure Jesus was dead. But they don't break his legs, but just to double check, one of them takes a spear and jabs it at Jesus, probably right at his heart. Blood and water come out, but Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't move because he's dead. John tells us this 
so that we can be just as certain as those Roman soldiers that Jesus really died on that cross. He didn't just faint or pass out. He wasn't just some ghost or spiritual body. When they pierced his side, he didn't move a muscle. Blood and water came out of his real, physical, dead body. John wants us to know the facts, what really happened on that bad day. And he tells us why, beginning in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Here he goes again. John is showing us now from Psalm 34.20 and Zechariah 12.10 that everything on this bad day was unfolding according to God's plan. And notice how emphatic he is. It's like John is saying, listen, I'm telling you, this is the truth. It really happened. I saw it with my own eyes. I know it's true. And why is he telling us all this? That you also may believe. Which begs the question, do you? In the next chapter, right before the end of the book, in John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us that this whole book was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's how the finished work of Jesus to pay the penalty for your sins is credited to your account. Not by good works, not by religious performance, not by trying to be a good person, but by faith alone. Maybe you're a child who's grown up hearing about Jesus at home and at church, but you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet. Maybe you're an adult who it's just never really made sense. It's just never all fit together how salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe you were just scrolling through Facebook and stumbled upon this live stream and you've never heard any of this before. God's word is bearing witness to you right now. And I am bearing witness to you right now. And our whole church is bearing witness to you right now that you also may believe this is what we do once we believe in jesus christ as our lord and savior we bear witness we testify we tell others what we know is true about jesus so that they also may believe we bear witness when there's pandemics and when there aren't pandemics on good days and on bad days right now during this pandemic we're getting a lot of opportunities to share the gospel some of you are meeting neighbors that you've never met before and getting opportunities to talk about Jesus. Some of you are calling loved ones and talking on the phone about death and about the hope of eternal life in Christ. Some of you are having conversations, spiritual conversations with coworkers that you could have dreamed of having even just a month ago. This is a great opportunity that we have right now to bear witness and tell others the gospel so that they also may believe. Like a good witness, John tells us what he saw. He tells us how Jesus died. In the last few verses of chapter 19, he tells us how Jesus is buried. John tells us how this bad day finally comes to an end. John 19, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. The Roman soldiers 
took Jesus away and crucified him. They took away his clothes, and now one of his followers comes and takes away his body. Another disciple joins Joseph of Arimathea, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night and had that conversation about being born again, is here again at the death of Jesus. Both Joseph and Nicodemus were respected members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. They didn't agree with the council's decision. The soldiers humiliated Jesus and uncovered his body. And now Joseph and Nicodemus will honor Jesus and cover his body. Joseph of Arimathea, who Matthew tells us was a wealthy man, has a tomb nearby where they decide to lay Jesus. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus died probably sometime around three in the afternoon. And since the Sabbath began at sundown, that didn't leave them a lot of time on their hands to bury him. Joseph has a completely empty tomb nearby, so they cover Jesus with an expensive amount of oils and spices and cloths and then lay him there. Like some of the kings in Israel's past, King Jesus is laid to rest in a garden tomb. Thus ends the worst day of Jesus' life. Thus ends the worst day of human history. The bad Friday that we call Good Friday ends with the Savior of the world dead in a tomb. A tomb that John tells us of all places was in a garden. This whole story, the story of the Bible, began in a garden, and now here we are again back in a garden. In the garden, the Garden of Eden, the first Adam was defeated by Satan. He sinned and he died. But the second Adam, the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ, defeats Satan, sin, and death in a garden. The first Adam was brought to life in a garden. And the second Adam is laid to rest in a garden. But that's not the end of the story, is it? I know I'm just supposed to be preaching the crucifixion up here today, but spoiler alert, the tomb is empty. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is brought back to life in a garden, defeating sin and Satan and death forevermore. That's why we call this bad day Good Friday. That's why bad days are over. Because according to the Bible, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him in such a way that we have been crucified with Jesus on the cross. We have been buried with Jesus in the tomb, and we have been raised to new life again with Jesus in the garden. The first Adam, because he sinned, was cast out of the garden, and then he died. But Jesus brings us back to the garden in order to pay the penalty for our sins and be raised to life so that by faith in him, we have everlasting life. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded in the garden. Where Adam was defeated in the garden, Jesus was victorious in the garden. That means by faith in Jesus, we have no bad days to look forward to 
in eternity. By faith in Jesus, we will only have good days, perfect days for eternity. So the question is not what turns a bad day into a good day, not what turns bad news into good news, but who turns a bad day into a good day? Who turns bad news into good news? The answer we have been looking for is Jesus. Jesus turns the bad news of the punishment for our sins into good news by suffering the penalty and finishing it in our place on the cross. Jesus turns the bad days of our lives into good days because now we know that Jesus lived the worst day possible in our place. No bad day we ever experience will ever be as bad as the bad day Jesus had when he was crucified in our place. Now we see all of our bad days in light of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Bad days on this earth create a greater longing in us for the perfect days that we will have with Jesus for eternity in the new heaven and new earth. Bad days in this life that always come to an end create a greater desire in us for the perfect days that we will have with Jesus in the life to come that will never end. That's how a bad day can be good. That's how a bad day when you fail your driver's test or a few weeks or a few months of bad days during a pandemic can be good days. Because these are the days when we will grow in our love and appreciation for Jesus, who lived our worst day for us, so that by faith in him, we can have an eternity of perfect days with him. That's why we call the worst day in human history, the day on which Jesus Christ was crucified, Good Friday. Because it was the bad day that ended all bad days forever.